We turn this morning to the book of Exodus, the third chapter. Message from which the song we just sang arises. Exodus chapter 3. As we continue this series of messages on Moses and his foreshadowing the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 3. We'll be reading together the first 12 verses. Excuse me. <laughs> Glasses. We're going to see, read together the first 14 verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. The Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face. for He was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of, the out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. This will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. As far as the reading of God's Word. Our Father, who art in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your Word. We ask that you will be with Pastor Bob as he speaks on this Word, that we may be drawn to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. From this particular passage this morning, I want to point out three things. First of all, the flight that we did not read about, but we're going to go back and look at. First of all, the flight. Secondly, the call. And then thirdly, what do we see in this that is a foreshadowing 
the coming of Jesus Christ. First of all, the flight. As this chapter opens, we are told Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. The last we read from last week was that an Egyptian princess is rescuing baby Moses out of an ark of bulrushes and taking her into his home. And Moses' mother has been hired as his nursemaid for a period of time. And then Moses is brought into Pharaoh's household. So probably when we left off, most commentators will tell you it might have been somewhere between the ages of three and five. Obviously, much has happened. Obviously, much took place between the end of verse 10 of chapter 2 and here, the beginning of chapter 3. What happened? Let me take you back to the 11th verse of chapter 2. There is a reason why Moses is in Midian. There is a cause. He just didn't decide to go on a vacation. Something happened. Most of us are aware of it, but... My guess is if I handed out a questionnaire of true and false questions, I've got a feeling quite a few of you might fail this one. Let's go back and read the text. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, well, obviously we're already far in advance. We've skipped years 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. We've probably skipped the teen years. In fact, I can tell you based upon biblical evidence that we'll look at in a minute, that by the time he was grown up, he's actually 40. So nothing is told us of Moses from basically the time he is 3 to 5 to the time he is 40. All of that information is not covered. Suddenly, at age 40, one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. He said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. He thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And then we read about the priest of Midian. He marries one of that priest of Midian's daughters, a woman by the name of Zipporah, and he begins to take up the task of keeping sheep. And it is in that process of keeping sheep that the call comes. The cause, then, obviously, is Moses, and probably most people would answer the murder of an Egyptian. That would have been one of the true or false questions. Moses murdered an Egyptian. The answer to that is false. He did not murder an Egyptian. Nowhere in Scripture is Moses condemned as a murderer. In fact... God's law is later going to cover such circumstances that when somebody else is attacking another individual, you have the right 
to step in and defend the life of the individual who is being attacked. And if in that process, the individual who is doing the attacking is killed by your defense, you are not considered a murderer. In fact, Scripture looks at this event in completely different light. We take you to two passages. First of all, keep your finger here at Exodus chapter 2. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, this great chapter on the heroes of faith. Verse 23. Hebrews 11:23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses... When he was grown up, notice the similarity between that and Exodus 2. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, by faith, He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, unless you think, well, yeah, but that was after the Exodus. No, because look at the next verse. Chronologically, by faith, he kept the Passover. So the reference in verse 27 is to this leaving, to this flight. By faith, he did so. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, that's a little... Ambiguous, ambiguous, that's the word. Okay, go back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Where we are, friends, is that Stephen, the first deacon, one of the first deacons, I should say, is hauled before the Sanhedrin for judgment. In that judgment, he has a vision and he preaches a sermon. This is the sermon that Stephen preaches there before the Sanhedrin. Go down, Acts chapter 7, verse 23. Let's back up to 20 so I get the whole context of Moses. Acts 20. 7 verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was instructed on all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, remember the reference I gave to when that event happened? When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel. Now remember what Hebrews said. Hebrews said is this is the time in which Moses by faith becomes associated with his own people. And you noticed in the Exodus passage how it points it out, how it's Moses goes to see his people. He sees one of his people being beaten. 
Moses, when he was 40 years old, verse 23, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, what would you expect to read? Based upon perhaps non-thorough training. We'd expect to read, when he saw one of them being wrong, he murdered the Egyptian. What does Scripture tell you? The Scriptures say Moses murdered the Egyptian? No, the text says, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Those are specific words referencing the law that is to come. This Israelite man, this Hebrew slave, is being beaten to death. Moses steps in and intervenes, sparing the man's life. And in the process of sparing the man's life, kills the Egyptian. Lawful. Allowable. Foreshadowing, is it not? There also arises the question. I want you to think about this. Exodus chapter 2 tells us that Moses looked around to see if there's anyone who has seen and then strikes the Egyptian and buries the Egyptian. Anything about that seem odd to you when you read it and think about it? Why is he looking around for anyone else if there is a witness by the Israelite slave? Have you ever considered? Scripture doesn't tell us, but have you ever considered the fact that by saying, looking for a witness, he sees none. What might that mean about the Israelite slave that was just beaten by the Egyptian? What might that mean? Perhaps he's dead. Seeing there is no witness to what Moses had dead. That's what Scripture tells you. There's nobody to see this. Well, if I'm the Egyptian, if I'm the Hebrew slave, sitting there watching Moses kill the Egyptian and then bury the Egyptian, am I not one to see? But if I'm dead, then there is no witness. Now, the question comes up, and I know we're taking a long time with this, but, you know, one, one of, this is one of those things, once you start studying and looking, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The question is, why does Moses bury the guy in the sand? Isn't he trying to cover up his crime? Isn't Moses trying to get away with something? Let me ask you a question. What do you suppose is going to happen if this Egyptian taskmaster is killed in Egypt, in Israelite territory where there are Israelite slaves, his body is left out in the desert at that place, and everybody leaves. 
the next Egyptian guards that come along and find a dead Egyptian taskmaster, who do you think they're going to blame? Who do you think is going to bear that responsibility? They're going to go, oh, Moses was here. I'll bet he killed somebody. Of course not. They're going to think that some of those Hebrew slaves rose up in an uprising and are beginning the rebellion. If the Pharaoh is already at the point where he is at in his ruthlessness, what do you suppose the ramifications are of killing an Egyptian taskmaster for the rest of the nation? Moses does this act not to protect himself. He buries the man in the sand to protect his people so that the Egyptians will not take the killing of this taskmaster out on his people. See, this passage is all about Moses identifying with the people. He is a man in a palace. He is a man who is the son of the king. But he comes out one day to identify with his people. And when he sees his people brutally and ruthlessly attacked and oppressed, he steps in, slaying the oppressor, seeking to keep his people from any potential Do you see a parallel? Do you see the one who is the son of God considering not equality with God something to be grasped but emptying himself, taking on our very identity, becoming associated with us? And when he sees and knows of the oppression that our taskmaster Satan has, he rises up and he slays him. Genesis 3.15. In order that his people, his people that he has identified with, are kept safe and protected. It's seeing this event in a whole different light, isn't it? the cause of Moses' flight. It's because he chose to identify with the people of God rather than to enjoy pleasures of sin. He was willing to be known as one of them rather than to be identified as an Egyptian. Well, secondly... The place. Where does he go? He goes to a place called Midian. Once again, now I'll challenge your general understanding of the location of these places. We are told that that Midian that that he's going to go to the mountain of God, which is on the westward side of Midian. Midian is not in the Sinai Peninsula. That was never identified as the land of Midian. Midian is always farther east, more in what we would call the Saudi Arabian Peninsula or the Arabian Peninsula. 
So you, you have to kind of shift your thinking. It, it's, it's further to the east than perhaps what, if you look in the back of your map and find a route of the Exodus, um, it, it, Midian is further to the east than that. We know that. Okay? That's where he goes. And he goes there to work as a shepherd. We're told that that happened for 40 years as well. Acts 7, verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. 40 years there, living in the palace as a prince of Egypt. 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness, self-imposed exile, being trained by God. The flight. Secondly, let's go back to Exodus chapter 3 and, and look at this call. It is unique, isn't it? Let's call pretty unique here. Three things to note. There is a burning bush. That's not unique. Bushes in the desert often burn. That's not an uncommon sight. What catches the notice of Moses, though, is that it's not burned up. Notice the reading of God's word, verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside, see this great sight. What's the great sight? A bush burning? No. Moses says, why the bush is not burned up. What amazes Moses is here we have a bush on fire and it stays a bush on fire. And it stays a bush on fire. We don't know how long Moses observed this thing, but it must have been for a period of time. Normally, okay, if a bush in the desert catches fire, there isn't much to it. It's kind of a poof. It goes up, it burns, it's sort of like that Christmas tree, that, that dried out Christmas tree that sometimes you like to light up, you know, it goes whoosh, and then it's done. It, it's over as fast as it began. What mystifies Moses is that this bush is not burned up. It continues on and on. The other thing is the uniqueness of the place, the exact location of where they're at. They're at Mount Horeb. They're at a place that is designated as the mountain of God. The end of the passage near the end of Exodus 3 where I read, one of the signs that was going to be given to Moses is that they would come back to this mountain to worship God. They were going to come back to Mount Horeb. This was going to be the place where Israel is going to gather. This is going to place be the place where God is going to speak again from the mountain. This is the place where God's law is going to be given on tablets of stone. This is where God is going to commission the building of his tabernacle. This is where God is going to institute the sacrificial system. This is the place where God's people are going to meet with God. This is the place from which the call comes. Not only the uniqueness of the fact of, of this non-consumed bush, but also the very location of where that bush is located. A place 
place that God tells Moses is holy ground. Take off those ordinary sandals, Moses. Take off the common. Take off the ordinary. Put on the unique. Come to me. Not with those ordinary sandals of your ordinary life. This is, this is something else, Moses. This is something special. When you come to me, when you come to this ground, when you stand upon this ground, this is holy ground. Later, when they come back, God is going to say, put a fence around this place so that the people don't come up because they're unholy. And then I'm going to consume them in my anger. Here it's take off your sandals. It's a reminder to us that as we come into God's presence, we come into the presence of the holy God. That which is common and ordinary, that which is part of the world, that which is part of our ordinary workaday life, is, this is not the place for it. There's something special, something unique taking place here. It's got to affect our attitude with which we come. It, it's got to affect the, the clothing in, with which we wear. It's got to affect the manner in which we approach. This is holy ground. It's what Moses is told, that when you're in my presence, that's a place of holiness. Take off your sandals. Certainly there is the uniqueness of this call that we do not find in other places in Scripture. Secondly, under the second point of the call, there is the identity of the caller. It's interesting that at the beginning of the passage, in verse 2, we are told, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame. Verse 4, we're told, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Verse 7, it's, then the Lord said. And yet there are references... For example, the one I read to you about the mountain, verse 12, you should serve God on this mountain, not me. There's an interesting dialogue going on as far as we try to identify. Who is it that's actually speaking to Moses out of this bush? But the identity of who is speaking is interesting because we're told it oftentimes throughout the book of Exodus. In chapter 3, Excuse me, in chapter 14, verse 19, in chapter 23, verse 20, in chapter 32, verse 34, in chapter 33, verse 2, this angel of the Lord continually makes appearances speaking as God himself. Interesting, but as we dial this back and as we look at this more and more, we begin to see who it is that's speaking. This is Christ. This is the second person of the Trinity. Not Jesus. He's not yet been born. Does not have that human nature. This is Christ in all his divinity coming to Moses, speaking to Moses, commissioning Moses. This is the one who identifies himself as the one who is the I am. The one who is Yahweh, the one who is completely unchangeable, the one who is self-existent, 
the one who is immutable, the one who is real, the one who is active, the one who is living, the one who is ever eternal. It is he who comes with his most personal name to Moses, calling him, I want you to be the deliverer of my people. This is what you are to do. 2 verse 6, 2 verse 10, 3 verse 10. You are to bring my people out of slavery. This is the commission I give to you. This is the call, Moses. Not a call from Pharaoh, not a call from the elders of Israel, not a call from the people of Israel. This is a call from I am. This is a call from Yahweh. Moses, take my people out of their bondage, out of their slavery. Lead my people out. Well, let me briefly highlight five ways in which in this passage, in the sections we've dealt with about Moses, we see the foreshadowing of Christ. I've already given you one, and that's in the necessary association. He came to completely identify with us. And yet the Gospel of John shows us how true it was. In Moses' case, he comes as their leader. He comes as the one who's going to lead them out. And yet they say, who made you a judge over us? Who made you our leader? John chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we read, He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Just as the people of Israel do not want Moses to be their leader and are unwilling to submit to his leadership, so too, when Christ came into this world, his people too are unwilling to accept his leadership and his rule. Read any one of the gospel accounts and it's just filled over and over and over again with the rejection of the vast majority of the people of Jesus' day. There's a second way in which we are foreshadowed here. All this quiet time, these 40 years that we have before his call, the 40 years there in the wilderness. So similar as you think about the life of Christ. Very little told to us of his early years. Here, here an event, there an event. But, but for the most part, we, we make these great leaps of time. God not telling us any of the details of his life between that, that return from Nazareth till he's 12 years old, and then again, not until he's about 30 years old. Great times of silence. And then, yet just before perhaps the, the significant event of, the, of what we would say is perhaps the human start of his ministry, a 40-day 40 40 time in the desert. God was so foreshadowing that which was going to be found in the coming of his son. And just as there is a significant event in Moses' life of coming to this bush, think of that day when Christ appears at the banks of the Jordan. 
The voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit, in the form of that heavenly dove, lights upon Him. So interesting that that Holy Spirit is also going to appear at Pentecost as a tongue of fire. And we look at it and we say, well, you see, there we have, there we have Trinity, don't we, at that baptism. There Jesus is being baptized, the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit's present. My friends, they're also present at the bush. The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Yahweh speaking, I am. And the fire that is never burning out. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present at the bush. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present at the baptism. Oh, the foreshadowing cannot be missed. The the people of God could, could not, if you studied Exodus, you could not miss what is taking place here. God is making it so clear, so plain. How much more so when we hear John's words. He first lays eyes upon Jesus This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moses, you're going to lead my people out. Jesus, you're going to be the Lamb to give your life to lead my people out of that bondage of sin. And who does Jesus identify himself as? John chapter 8, 58 and 59. Before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus said he was. Jesus himself claimed that he was the I am. That he was the one who was there before Abraham, which is the same reference that is given to us in Exodus chapter 3. It is Jesus who is going to say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. See, out of that bush comes the one who speaks, who says, I am who I am. Jesus says, that's me. I am the I am. I am the one going to lay down my life to rescue my people, to draw them out of this bondage of sin in order that you might be my people. And not one of you who are mine can ever be taken from my hand or from the hand of my Father. Mine rescued you. Why? Because I am the eternal I am. I don't weaken. I don't diminish. My love doesn't wane. My power doesn't grow weary. I am the eternal I am. And I have kept you. And I will keep you as my people. The Greek Septuagint translates the word that is given here in the Old Testament for God by the term Lord. Kyrios. Paul tells us, whoever believes in the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Moses leading those people out. A picture for us of the great leading out that Christ will accomplish. Those who have the blood of the Lamb covering their life are those who are His, those who have been led out, those who are His people. Does the blood of Christ cover your life? Have you owned the I Am as your Lord, as your Savior? If not, Hear his call today. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will find and give you rest. For those who know the power of that blood, rest in Christ today. And God's people say, Father, thank you for your word. For it's reminder again of the fact that you've communicated all through your word the coming of your Son. Father, we thank you that we live on the other side of this revelation so that for us, Lord, there can be no excuse. can be no excuse. For, Lord, you have written clearly for our eyes to see, for our ears to hear the truth of who Jesus Christ is. We pray, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will open our hearts to receive your truth in Christ's name, for his glory. God's people say, Amen.